Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday, so I have to come up with a yard site talk about somebody. This week is easy. I see today or yesterday was the yard site of Rebutical Hunt Inspector, one of the big biggies. And him I could talk about for four hours, 14. But don't worry. Uh, Rebutical Hunt Inspector, if you don't know what I'm talking about, is not named after YU. YU is named after him. And he was a big rabbi, the biggest, in Russia and Lithuania, actually. In the 1800s, for those that don't know. And there are a lot of big rabbis in Russia and Lithuania in the 1800s, but he was special, and I'll try to explain why. First of all, I said Russia. You have to understand one thing you probably don't know. We use the term today Russian Jewry, and at the time Ritzel Khan Inspector, you could use that term. But really, it's not true. The, there never were any Jews in Russia. Russia is the name of a certain country been around for a thousand years or so. And Russia never allowed a single Jew in. That's their privilege, you know, the Greek Orthodox religion, very bigoted. They don't want any Jews, zero. The joke is that in the 1700s, Russia conquered and annexed like a big chalik of Poland, the old Poland that no longer exists, the kingdom of Poland. And so what they did was, this is in the time of Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, and they took over and added to Russia huge areas. Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, things like that. Probably where some of your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents are from. And when they did, so the reason Russia did that was to push their borders west. That's why when Napoleon attacked them, he had to go a long, long way till he got to Moscow. So it was a good move on the part of the Russians. But on the other hand, they got a booby prize because... With that land comes a whole lot of people who are not Russians. And specifically, when Russia took over that part of Poland, they annexed and acquired the largest Jewish population in the world. And also, not only quantitatively, but qualitatively, the most Jewish Jewish population in the world, the firmest. The most steeped in Judaism and Torah, that sort of thing. At the time Russia took over these provinces, that's when Hasidus was starting. So you give you an idea of how Jewish... The area is. Now, in the old days, before Russia took it over, it was part of Poland, the old kingdom of Poland. And without going into too many details, it was like a happy hunting ground for the Jews. They could be as from as they wanted, as Jewish as they wanted. The government didn't really interfere with them. They had a grand old time. But then when they were taken over by the czars of Russia, things changed. For a while, they still kept up the old Polish way, but eventually... The czars of Russia, the rulers, wanted to incorporate these territories organically into Russia, make them part of Russia. But the problem is, the people in there aren't Russians. They're different types, including a lot of Jews. And the czars of Russia hated the Jews, because they're anti-Semites. That's who they are. And the result is, they made a rule that the Jews who live in the territories I just described, 
Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, and so forth, are not allowed to live in Russia proper. So that's a screwball Russian system. It's like you say, the Jews in America can only live in the Northwest, like New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and so forth, and they're not allowed to move into the South or to the Midwest or the West or something like that. That's how it was for the Jews in Russia until the First World War, for a long time. And that was the case when Yitzhak Khan Spector was alive. And the Jews were then subject by the Tsarist government to Russianization. They tried to make them speak Russian, adopt Russian ways, and hopefully drop the Jewish religion and become Russian, meaning Christians. This is the world of yesteryear, and they made all kind of gazeras. It was a really tough business. And Rebizik Khan Spector was born in 1817 and died in, uh, what was it, 1896. So he lived all through the 1800s, lived exactly through this period. Now, so far, it's very external. But he himself was a very interesting person. And he became the great hero, even though he had no shackles to heroism. Yitzhak Khan Spector was born in a small town. His father was like the rabbi. I mean, a small village, a few families. The, everybody stars, the rabbi stars, the Balabatim stars. That's one of the small, poor places of yesteryear in Belarus, in White Russia. And he happened to, and he went to Yeshiva, you know, they didn't ruin him that way. And he never was fit in any cookie cutter. He just learned with his father. And it so happened, he was the kid you hear about once in a while, who's an Eloy, a genius, a natural born. He likes learning. He takes to it. He finds it interesting. It wasn't interested in anything else. And that's what he was till the day he died. He actually liked learning. It wasn't interested in anything else. And I mean, Gemara and Halacha. He's not interested in Chumash. He's not interested in Drushas, in oratory, in philosophy, in history, Ivrit, Gaisha stuff. Forget it. There's really, Rosh Baruba was on learning. But since his father was a rub and his own personal bent was in a very practical nature, his learning which is very deep, and you know, he's one of these people that learned all day long for all of his life, that sort of thing, was very halachalamaisa oriented. That's just who he was. A lot of people then, like now, go through shivas and that kind of world, and they learn Gemara just to learn Gemara. That's a big madriga too. And to understand Akash and a Teretz and Rishonim and Achronim and all that kind of business, the brisker Torah, this Torah, that, and the other, and that's called learning Lishma. And you just want to understand the logic and the theories behind what the Gemara and the Mepharshim say more and more, and call it kavod. But you also need some people now to paskan Shiloh. And in that case, your learning has to be uh, inclined in a different way. They don't teach this in yeshivas. It has to be practical, to be able to take all that you learned, including the Rishonim and the Achronim and all the Svaras, and then know how to apply them in practical and concrete cases. That's who he was. And already at a very young age, you know, this is the old world of our great-great-great-grandparents' generation. You got married like he did when you were 13 years old, you know. And I remember there was some girl that uh, they, they heard he's an Eloy, you know. It's one of those stories. There's a guy in a small little village, and he's uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, and he knows everything. He's a, he's a genius in the future. And, you know, who th- th- this guy wants to marry his daughter, and that guy wants to marry his daughter. But he was a grubby young, you know, he was a uh, just... One of these wild Elisha types. So he didn't dress well. He didn't have good manners at the table. And I remember some girl from a nice family, she says, and she probably was 13. She says, I don't want to marry him. And later on, she said, oh, what a mistake I made. That's like a little romantic. Uh, you can make a movie out of that. But anyway, he got married. 
and he learned with his father-in-law's house by himself for a couple of years, uh, I think with her Binyama Diskin or something like that, and uh, he just took off. Now, once you're married at 13, guess what? By the time you're 15, 16, 17, you got a family, and you don't have an income. And so, and I think his father died when he was young, and so he's learning all the time, but they took him to the rabbi maybe where his father had been or some one of the other very small villages. I remember there was like no wages and they were starving. And what do you do? He's got some children. And he went, walked. He didn't have a, couldn't afford a ride to some town far away. And he met a, a, a big Akasha rabbi, Mishkanis Yaakov. You know, this very, very famous uh, rabbi in those days, Yaakov of Karlun. And he begged him basically to find him a, a position to pay more money just to put bread on the table. Uh, and they tried to help him. And it'll take too long to go through all the details. But by the time it's over, he found another position. And here's a guy who didn't grow a beard yet. I think he didn't grow a beard until like in his 20s. I mean, physically, you know, the hair didn't come out. And so he looked very strange. But he already knows the, 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 the halacha well and the other things like that. And... By the time he got a decent position, which I think was in the uh, Navartic, that didn't pay that great, but paid already something. Uh, he already started to have a fame, and people start writing him shilas from everywhere because they know this young guy is not like all the yeshiva guys. He's just learning theoretically. But he's Allah Isa, and he can write a tshuva, meaning if you send him a question, he can give an answer and not simply say, I think this is the answer, or I think that's the answer, but write a defense of it out of uh, the Gemara and the postgame and all the rest of it. And even though he's very young, people start sending him questions because the whole world is full of rabbis who are afraid to handle hard stuff and they're looking for somebody else to take the responsibility on themselves. And who can blame them? Suppose you deal, for example, with an aguna. You don't want to get that wrong. Suppose you deal with, a, you know, a, what you need a questions. You don't want to get that wrong. And so you want somebody who doesn't mind saying, this is a din and here's my reasoning for it and I'm willing to defend and stand up against all critics. And uh, there you have it. So... He became a rabbi in the Vardic. And I just remember a famous story. He started to get famous because in the Voloshan Yeshiva, there was a big fight of who should be the Rosh Yeshiva. And mm -hmm. two factions formed. And uh, the... So I'm sorry. So uh, he was the one that eventually took on his shoulders. Everybody sent him all the shawls. He, he, he tries to answer them in long, very complex chubas. His writing that he, he published his first volume when he was young. That's how one of the reasons he made an international reputation. And he impressed everybody with his lumdas and all, all that sort of thing. But it's a lumdas in what direction? to try to find the practical question. I would say in general, I'm not the world's expert in all of his shells and tubas. I've seen them, but I remember two areas that they always send him questions that he's trying to figure out a way possible, if possible. Sometimes you can't. You know, sometimes it's, it's, it's bad news. It's famous. Most of the Aguna questions he got, he was able to find a hatter for. The ones he was not able to find a hatter for, this is what they say. The husband eventually showed up, which means that he had like siyata Shmai, you know. If he didn't feel it was right, even though he gave it his best shot, there's probably a reason behind it, and this enhances reputation. Also, a lot of Hefzid Maruba questions. 
In the old days, especially before Pesach, with selling businesses and selling chametz, a lot of times you end up with situations where people can lose a lot of money. And he knew that Jews in Europe, Eastern Europe were poor, people can't afford this. And once again, if it's possible to use this svar or that svar to put together a case, I'm not going to go into the technical side of it. Uh, if, you, if, if, if you can, then he would try to. And therefore, everybody know, if you ask him a, a, a shail, if you need a thing, he'll give it his best shot. And he will really work. Uh, uh, let me let me clarify myself. If he hadn't a good question, he would spend a week, two weeks, ten weeks. You hear what I said? Ten weeks. On one question, thinking day and night, is, you know, in every off moment, how can he find a way to fix the situation? If he can, he can. But to, the, the, the unbelievable energy and desire to help captured everybody's heart. That is all I can say. And the result was you had somebody that we don't have today at all. And that is a Godel Ador, as the expression goes, who is accepted as such by all the Jews everywhere, whether they're uh, religious or not religious, or observant or not religious, all the Maskilim. It's just very interesting. And the, the proto-Zionists and the others. Now, he came to realize that he has this popularity. He wasn't a fool. And from the time he became the rabbi in Kovna, he said that because of his position, they're going to turn to him for politics stuff, meaning politics in all kinds of ways. If there's a fight in the town, he should intervene. If somebody's getting fired, he should help. If the Russian government is going to do something against the Jewish people, this is the time of the czars, can you figure some way to work behind the scenes to lobby to avoid or prevent the gazer from happening? Now, he was an old-fashioned Jew who sat and learned all day long. So he wasn't the same cerebral Hirsch who had a college education, was very eloquent and all the rest of it. He was a terrible speaker. Everybody knows this. He wasn't an orator to save his life. He only spoke like the old school, Shabbos HaGadol and Shabbos Tshuva, and then only in Pilpul, and nobody understood him the way they used to do in Eastern Europe. It's, you know, he didn't have that kind of, that particular form of charisma. But he had this, people write about the fact that he just looked so nice and so kind and so uh, wonderful that that itself captured hearts. It's interesting, including of the Goyim. The Russian governors, who were no friends of the Jews in Kovna, all came to like him. And he was smart enough to always be very diplomatic uh, with Jews and with non-Jews and always try to be very positive. And people like that. So what I'm talking about is a Godol who had the kind of personality that you weren't afraid to go over and ask him or talk to him about something, and he would always treat you very respectfully. That's a different image I'm trying to describe than a lot of other Godola who for ter- perfectly understandable reasons, since they're such geniuses and they're such... Uh, a lofty sphere, and the head is all rolling all the time in heavy stuff, especially in learning, you're kind of like unapproachable. You're afraid to go and bother them. You're afraid to get in their way. After all, would you like to drive for three hours from Chaim Brisker in your car? You know, that's a, most people would be afraid of that sort of thing. And not Ritzel Somehow or other, the whole masses, the public thought, I can come and talk to him. And not only that, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. You know what I'm it's, it would be great. I, was, I would talk the rest of my life to my children about that opportunity. And we have many cases of this. I'll just tell you one example. I read once in a book. He came to, uh, he's from Covenus, he came to Vilna for a funeral, and he got off the train station, and he went outside, and you know, you have your cab drivers. In those days, the cab is a horse and wagon. And they're all Jewish cab drivers. In, in Lithuania, a lot of the cab drivers with the horse and wagon were Jewish. And they all say, I guess, Rabbi, get in my car, you know, get in my cab. And who do you pick? 
And one guy said, yes, have Rachmanus on me and my wife and my children, please. And so once he heard the word Rachmanus, he got in the cab, and the guy drove him around all day long to this thing, to the funeral, to back and forth, all different places. And when it's over, after spending all day driving around, so he says, how much do I owe you? I'm not taking a penny. I insist on paying you. He said, what do you think, I'm stupid? I would never take a penny for this mitzvah. And the guy who, who was the cab driver was not a particularly from guy, they say. Magushim is the expression, a very gospelish type of person. But he said to his family, all this, he said, old, what they thought was an idiot, that would take a mitzvah for driving him around. This is the kind of aura that he had around him. And the interesting thing is, his position put him there for him with a lot of politics even though he wasn't that type at all. He was more of a learning type, uh, 24-7. And he became involved, maybe pushed in, to different types of struggles, political struggles. One of them is Klapi Chutz. That means the czarist government. Every time they had all these new rules and regulations against the Jews, and bored did they pile on the rules and regulations against the Jews. The main people who were lobbying against this were non-from-rich Jews living in St. Petersburg, people like that. But they always wanted to consult him because they said, for some reason, the Russian government, I don't know why, the Russian government respects you. <laughs> for some reason, they heard that in Covenant is like a saintly type person, and he represents the true Jewish uh, spirit, and we want you to participate in our negotiations. And he would say, what are you asking me to come to, Co- to St. Peter's before? I don't speak Russian. I don't know anything about politics. They said, just come along. That's one thing. And i got to tell you this story because my father, Oshom, who was from Lithuania, therefore he grew up with all these stories about Yitzhak Ochanan. And it's just, <laughs> just to give you an idea, uh, that one, this is what he told me, that one time there was this big banker, this is true, uh, Baron Gunsberg, who uh, was the rich assimilated Jew in St. Petersburg, who really was the one lobbying on behalf of trying to avert these anti-Semitic decrees, even though he was not from at all and actually was kind of in many areas opposed to the rub on him. And uh, Baron Gunsberg called in a, a young, assimilated Jewish type of guy in his big, fancy, schmancy bank in St. Petersburg, the capital city. And he said, listen, the Kovnerov is coming over here in this and this train, and he's gonna, and he can't speak Russian, so I'm telling you, you go and present yourself to him when he gets off the train, and wherever he wants to go, you take him there, and you do all the translations, interpreting. And the guy said, what are you sending me for? I don't know anything about this. He says, i got to send somebody so you're picked. And so he went to the train station, and he thought he's going to see a very distinguished type of modern rabbi. And every single Hanukkah got off the train. I think it was just by himself, if I remember the story correctly. And he looked like a rabbi, you know. Nothing special, like in the old days, with a fur hat and a long coat, as the rabbin dressed in Russia. And the guy introduced himself. And Yitzhak Hanan said, listen, I'm here for a short while. You're at my disposal, so take me to the Ministry of the Interior, and I need you to translate when I meet the guy, because I have an appointment with the Ministry of the Interior. And he said, you have an appointment with him? So he took him there, and when they came in the lobby waiting to be admitted into the minister's room, so the young guy is figuring, this guy can't even speak Hebrew, I mean, can't speak Russian, and he's a botlin, as they call it, the old school, you know, learning type. Of, you can see all day long his mind is wandering in Tosos or something like that, which was true. And I feel like an idiot in this kind of position. But when they gave the card to the secretary of the minister waiting to be admitted, it was called in first in front of everybody else. And when he came in, 
Shabit Zilchana told the guy, listen, I don't speak Russian, but I understand it, basically. So I want you to, he told me Yiddish, of course, I want you to, to, to translate what I'm saying word for word. Don't deviate from what I'm saying. He said, okay, Rebbe, whatever you say. And he came into the big chamber, and there was the minister of the interior, and he told him like this, bring a from Fetter in Constantinople, in Istanbul. Tell him I bring him greetings from his uncle in Constantinople. And he said, what's that got to do with anything? Just tell it to him. And so he told him, the rabbi says he's bringing you greetings from the uncle in Constantinople. And the minister said, thank you very much. And then the rabbi said, I guess, we're out of here. Let's leave. And he said, he just came. And they left, and he took him back to the train station, and he thought he's ever about to. He thought he's over the hill, because the conversation made no sense. And, uh, you know, he went back to work. And like a week later, a certain law against the Jews was repealed. And this guy wasn't smart enough to figure out what was going on. How could he be? Which was, they bribed the minister in interior by getting to his uncle, who was the Russian ambassador in Constantinople. So instead of giving them the money in Russia, where it could be detected, they gave the Russian money overseas. And this guy thought that the rabbi's over the hill and doesn't know anything, and really he was two steps ahead of everybody else. Now, how could somebody like this, who I'm talking about, really was head in, in, in learning in Tosos and Rishonim and Kitsos? Really, really, all day long. That's who he was. Be involved in political matters and international matters and all that. And uh, one of the answers is when he became the Roman company, he hired a personal secretary, Yaakov Levi Lipschitz, who was a real from like Haredi type guy, who was a Moscow. By that I mean he knew how to write Hebrew and he was politically active and all that. Again, he was ultra orthodox right winger, but he was a Moscow because he knew the uh, the literary style and the Hebrew and he knew all the writings. And this Yaakov Lebelichitz was his personal secretary until he died, and he handled all of his correspondence with other rabbis around the world in non-halachic matters, and with government officials, and with the rich Jews, and with Rothschild, and a whole network throughout the world developed as a result of this indefatigable secretary. And I can tell you this, many years after Rizal Inspector died, this secretary wrote a three-volume autobiography, which I read when I was very young, Zichron Yaakov, Yaakov Lebelipshitz. And if you want to understand what was really going on behind the scenes, that's what you got to read. It's in a very difficult, fancy-schmancy Hebrew. Now I can read it easily, but when I was young, it wasn't so easy. And I remember my father, Oshon, was sick in the hospital in pain, and I got the book and I brought it to the hospital. He said, this is fun to read. <laughs> you know, the Russian Jews like to read all this business. And just to give you an example, I want to talk, I told you I can go and live for a long time. In the 1880s, a whole bunch of pogroms broke out for certain reasons in Russia. I won't go into the background. And people started getting killed, and, uh, you know, and, and, this, and their heads were split, and it was rapes and burning, and terrible in many cities in, in the Russian Empire against the Jews. And the Russian government, as you might imagine, was suppressing the information it shouldn't get out. And how do you get the information out so that the rest of the world can make a protest? And the Khan inspector and Yakov Levy Lipschitz, they organized a secret uh, uh, system in which they... They had a, a certain businessman who left Russia, and he brought out these letters that were written in a code, and he sent them to the chief rabbi of England and to Rothschild and to Samson Ravel Hirsch and others, and hey, and Pipius Shlucham Israel, like they say in the Davening. That was how the letters were written, meaning it, it sounded like some Hebrew Torah thing, but really a political message. And it worked, and it worked. As a result, once the news hit the world, it was a more civilized world at that time. There were big protest meetings and marches in Paris and London, 
and European government officials intervened with the government, and all kinds of things like that. As I said before, same St. Rafael Hirsch was involved, he got some German princes, all behind the scenes. And it really did help the uh, ease up on the pogroms. It's not the only part of it, but it was part of it. And nobody knew, and nobody would believe that an old rabbi like Herzl Inspector, who I'll tell you again, is all ahead and learning all the time, was involved and, and, and the, the, sort of the mastermind behind this whole uh, kind of business. These are the sorts of stories that you can read in the, uh, in the three volumes of the Zichon Yaakov. Now, uh, I would make one or two more points, because it's already long. And that is, I also told you it was Klape Panim. Rizikon Inspector was very involved with internal Jewish politics. This was very, very tricky. Because by that time, in the second half of the 1800s, in Russia, you already had people with very strong different opinions on Yiddishkeit and Torah and matters of that, of, of that kind. He knew that he is respected by all groups. And he worked hard to maintain the good relations and respect with all the others. There were some rabbis who didn't like that. They say he's kissing up, he's going too much with the, with the bad people. But he did it the way he saw it, right? And as a result, he was able to use his power and influence to prevent things from getting worse and sometimes move things in the right direction. And so he made sure that the, he was a proto-Zionist. He joined the Chobet Zion, even though some people said you shouldn't do that. He said, you know, you have to encourage people to move to Israel, and I want to have connections with the people who are in charge of it, so they shouldn't make the things in Israel go bad. That's why he was the one they consulted about the Shemitah, if they could sell the land to an Arab in 1888. It like a, like a one-time deal. And he's the one who gave the heter that, they, that those who relied upon and relied on. And, and then you know it's controversial. He said, this is what I think is the right, the, the right approach. The, uh, there are many other areas of this nature. And as a result, I can say that during his lifetime, he retarded, he held back the left wing from moving to the left. You understand? It wasn't great, but he made it that it didn't get worse. And mainly because they had respect for him. Mainly because he impressed everybody so much they didn't want to get on his bad side. Not that they're afraid of him, but didn't want to hurt his, hurt, hurt his feelings. I'll give you one example of many, many before I end to show you how smart he was and how he used his, his position that he carefully cultivated for good ends. I remember in France in the 1880s, I think, uh, there was a move by the French rabbis. Now you have to understand, France in the 1800s switched from Frum to like conservative half and half. It was half Orthodox, half conservative. That's a screwball story of Judaism in France in the 19th century. And so they had a rabbi and all the rest of it was half conservative, half Orthodox. And there was a particular move to, um, how should I put it, try to do like you, you see over here, a marriage al -tanai. They didn't feel comfortable with issuing Gittin because the French state insisted they're in charge of the divorces. So what you do is everybody gets married, they make a Tanai in, in the marriage time that if they get a French civil divorce, the marriage should be retroactively annulled. It's an old question in the Gemara, and usually what they say is like this doesn't work. Yesh Tanai be Kedushin Tanai Benesuin is the expression. That without going into technicalities of it, if you go ahead and get married, that doesn't work. But there is more than one side to that question. It's been a controversial issue in the 20th century as well. And this is what the French Rabbanot wanted to do. Well, all hell broke loose. They were criticized by all the Rabbanim in Europe, in Germany, in Hungary, in this place, in that place. 
because lozu haderech, and you can't go and do that for halachic reasons. Well, that just made the French rabbis double down. You know, he said, nobody tells us what to do, and we're going to push this through. It's like a tacon in France or whatever. And a lot of politics went back and forth and forth and back. And at the end, listen to this. The French rabbinic rabbis got together and they said, there's one person in the world whose opinion we respect because he's not political and he's normal and he'll give an opinion without any regard for the, you know, from Kite side or any other side. You're a musical kind of specter in Kovna. He's one that we all like and look up to. So every time we deal with him, it's very pleasant. And they wrote him a letter. What do you think about this idea? And he wrote back a letter I saw. It's very diplomatic. It's this classic Yitzhakana style. And what he said was, I think it's a great, interesting fact that you are all looking to try to help the girls out in France. And it shows what wonderful people you are. And it speaks very well about your Jewish heart. And it's really great. However, I would say for a certain number of reasons I don't want to go into, you know, for a lot of other reasons, it's not a good idea at the present time. So if you ask my advice, with the greatest respect, I would tell you to back off. And because of that, they did back off. So look what he did. He cultivated his, his image with the outside world, and he used it in such a way to, to prevent things that others, by screaming and carrying on, couldn't prevent. As you see, I could go on and on and on about this because there's a lot more to, to this story than what I'm saying, but uh, I'm, I'm speaking too long as it is. So I'll just leave with the image that uh, I don't think Rabbi Zulchan Spector is known so well in the yeshiva world because he writes Shalos and Shubas, and those are not studying the yeshiva world, and his Shalos and Shubas are very lumpish and very technical, very dense, and this is not on the regular yeshiva agenda. However, it would anybody who can or, or studies any of them at all, especially the first one, the Bear Yitzhak, if you work through any of them, you see it's like a major piece of Torah scholarship. And you, you, you'll see over there reflected something we don't have today, which is one big guttle that everybody holds from. Uh, the right wing, the left wing, the non from, uh, you know, he didn't leave a successor. Nobody else I know was like this. Ramosha Feinstein was suspected by the Orthodox and maybe a few others, but nobody else. Rabchaim Rezegrzynski was respected by the yeshiva world, you know, so not by the Zionists. Uh, you know, same thing with the Chavetz Chaim. It's, it's not true. Ritzel Inspector, who died in 1896, was held from by everybody. That is the reason that when they started YU, which wasn't a uh, U at that time, it was just the yeshiva. In New York, they say, we're going to call it Yeshiva Zerizakon Inspector because everybody will 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 respect will respect that and, and, and hold from that name. Unfortunately, it's a personal authority. It didn't carry over. And the minute he died in Kovna, so all the leaders of the community got together from the different factions, and everybody wanted to do something to honor his memory. But right at the beginning, it fell apart because the Frum said, let's make a Yeshiva called Yeshiva Zerizakon and the non from said, let's make a college called College Yitzhakolchonen. And the Zionist said, let's make a kibbutz or something like that called Kibbutz Yitzhakolchonen. And they never could agree what to do with it. Uh, because it takes a very unusual person, like an Aaron Akoin type, to hold everybody together, especially if you're holding them together to try to keep them on the, on the straight and narrow path of the Derech HaTorah. So uh, it's the most unusual person whose yard site fell out, was it today or yesterday? 
And with that, I conclude. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.